Welcome back to the Theory of Anything podcast. Hey, Peter. Hello, Bruce. How you doing? Good. Hey, okay. Last time we talked about Deutsch's theory of knowledge as contained within the book, Beginning of Infinity. Today, we are going to talk about the constructor theory of knowledge, which is a more developed version of Deutsch's theory of knowledge. And it's not just Deutsch anymore. He's got other people working on it. Chiara Morletto in particular talks about it quite a book bit in her book, The Science of Canon Kant. So, but let me, for people who didn't hear the previous ep episode, let me recap quickly what we talked about. In the last episode, we talked about Deutsch's definition or theory, definitions and theories, the same thing, according to, uh, or can be the same thing, I should say, according to uh, Popper. So his definition of knowledge, which was adapted information that causes itself to remain so. We talked about how Deutsch doubts that artificial evolution creates knowledge which if we take his definition seriously means he doubts artificial evolution creates adapted information that causes itself to remain so. He uses the example of a genetic programming algorithm that teaches a robot to walk and claims all the knowledge came from the human. But the problem is, is that this example is an example of an objective creation of adapted information, the walking robot algorithm, that causes itself to remain so. All its competitors are gone now because this was the most useful version. And possibly it then even gets copied out into hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of robots because it was this useful algorithm that allows the robot to walk. So it objectively fits Deutsch's definition of knowledge, at least as contained within the beginning of infinity. Could the problem here be that the beginning of infinity was a less than full account of Deutsch's theory of knowledge? Could his constructor theory of knowledge eliminate the walking robot example from being knowledge and could it do so in a consistent way? That's what we're going to explore in this episode today. Well, I'm excited for that. I have do have to admit as much time as I've spent sort of delving into Deutsch's ideas, I find the constructor theory kind of the scariest. I guess I'm yeah. not like, it's just really there. There's just some, I, I'm a few aha moments short of really, it really making much sense to me to be 100% <laughs> honest, but um, I'm going to try to hang on here. Okay. All right. Now let me give a little history on this one. Cause I think this is interesting. I once made a comment to the effect on your Facebook page that we don't have a good theory of knowledge comparable to say information theory where we can mathematically and precisely represent what knowledge is like we can with information. Actually, maybe I made it in the podcast and it was on your Facebook page where um, Hervé took exception to it, but Hervé took issue with me saying this and he cited Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge. Okay, but as I explained the previous uh, episode, I'm not of the opinion that Deutsch's theory of knowledge is yet a good explanation or at least a completely as good as I would like it explanation, and or at least not as good as information theory is. Though I do think it shows promise if we can correct some problems, some existing issues with it. So I don't necessarily dislike or disagree with the theory entirely. In fact, I, I really feel like it's kind of a step forward in some ways about thinking of knowledge, but I also think it contains some really problematic areas that I, I've never seen fully addressed. Okay, such as discussed in the previous podcast. So Hervé then attempted to summarize Deutsch's theory of knowledge. He wanted to like put together what it was, kind of a quick summary of it, which I've never seen anybody do, which I thought was really useful. His first attempt didn't quite match what I thought 
Deutsch is actually saying in the constructive theory of knowledge. So I offered some criticisms and it, he, he took those criticisms to heart and he rewrote the, um, the summary. And between the two of us, we came up with a summary, fairly short summary of Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge. And at that point, actually, I published it on your Facebook page with Hervé's permission. And I thought it was a really good summary of Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge that put it together compactly enough that I could actually interact with it well. Hmm. Okay. I then pre we presented it by doing this. We presented it to the fans of David Deutsch for feedback. And in the comments, it looked to me like there was very little they were asking to change. Okay, some thought it was just spot on. A few took some really mild issues with it, like just nothing of any real substance that I could see. Okay, so I came away feeling like that that summary that Hervé wrote is a pretty good summary of, of Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge. So I'm going to use it here as equivalent to Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge. All right. So Hervé first defines information as having four main properties. One, it always needs a medium. Two, it presents with a multiplicity of choices. Three, it presents with a switching process. Four, it allows itself to be copied, including to a different medium. Now, I, I don't think anybody doubts knowledge is information. So I'm going to quickly move past that part of his definition, okay, and concentrate on the part that I think is more important. Knowledge, he says, is information that has three main properties. Number one, it is capable of enabling its own preservation. Number two, it can be copied from one embodiment to another without changing its properties. And number three, it can enable transformations and retain the ability to cause them again. He then adds this. There are only two kinds of knowledge that exist at two levels of abstraction. Level one, knowledge is directly instantiated in abstract catalysts such as useful genes encoded in nucleic acids and is created through genetic variation and natural selection. The neo-Darwinian theory of evolution is the best explanation we have so far. Examples, virus, bacterium, oak trees, human beings. Level two, knowledge is first instantiated in human minds via creative process fueled by conjecture and criticism, human intelligence. Once created, it's embodied as an abstract catalyst um, it's embodied as an abstract catalyst can take many forms. We don't have any working theory of human intelligence so far. Examples, agriculture, democracy, language, the Mona Lisa, and quantum theory. This is, this last part, these two levels, is Hervé's equivalent to what I've been calling the two sources hypothesis. So just as a reminder, if I say the two sources hypothesis, I'm referring to the part of David Deutsch's theory of knowledge that there are only two sources of knowledge, biological evolution and human minds, human mm -hmm. ideas or human minds. Okay. So notice that part of his summary included the two sources hypothesis. And every summary you will ever see of David Deutsch's theories of knowledge will always include some form of the two sources hypothesis. Hmm. Can I ask you a quick question about the uh, constructor theory? Sure. Um, I, I think part of my conclusion confusion is maybe a little I'm a little bit confused about what it's trying to do. It, is it just a theory? I mean, you, you've spoken about it as a theory of knowledge, which I the, think makes some so sense. The constructor theory of knowledge is a subset of constructor theory. It's oh, not, okay. It's not itself okay. constructor theory. Because it's oftentimes spoken about something that like almost wants to like totally turn science 
on its head. upside down. Yes. Like you could, I almost imagine like, do you re, do you rewrite the whole physics textbook in constructor theory language? Okay. Or, or I need to do a podcast okay. on constructor theory. And okay. I have asked that question to every person I can think of who knows something about constructor theory. Is that what they're trying to do? And I get the vaguest answers. And, and this is it, it this is oh. a, a question that deserves the same treatment as we're giving to the constructor theory of knowledge, because it seems to me that nobody knows the answer to that question. And mm. Deutsch just answered it very compellingly in his most recent interview. <laughs> and I don't have it handy, so I can't tell you what it was. Yeah, he, with Sean Carroll. Yeah. Yes, with Sean Carroll. He basically yeah. says, no, we will not be re rewriting the textbook yeah. of physics into constructor theory. So, and it was the first time I have ever heard a clear yeah. answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah. That was when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's been exactly my question for a long time. <laughs> but okay. Well, that even what you said right there is very helpful. So there's constructor theory. And then a subset of that is the constructor theory of knowledge. Okay. Yes. That's, that's helpful. All right. Okay. So is this theory, a good theory of knowledge comparable to information theory? Well, clearly many people, including Hervé, who wrote this, see it as being such a, a good theory. But I do not believe it is. And, and, and that's what we're going to talk about in this episode today. I'm going to take you through the theory, and I'm going to help you understand why I don't think it's equivalent to information theory in terms of being a good explanation. That doesn't mean I think it's a terrible explanation or a bad explanation. I think it's on the right track in many ways. And I think very highly of it. But that was why I had said we don't have a good explanation of knowledge equivalent to information theory. Okay. I'm going to back up and I'm going to claim that I was right when I said that. But that doesn't mean we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Okay. Are you with me so far? Oh, yes, I am. Okay, so I think that I think in particular, the theory has something deeply wrong with it, though. And I'm even going to tell you that of my opinion is it's the two sources hypothesis that is wrong in it. And if I think you dropped the two sources hypothesis, I think that would be a massive error correction to the theory that would actually get it back on track again. And it probably could at some point be developed into a good theory of knowledge similar to information theory. Okay, so. But that's all my opinion, and I'm not going to ask anybody to accept that. I'm going to make a series of arguments, judge for yourself. Okay, so here's the problem. Do the three criteria offered by Hervé actually force us to conclude that only the two sources create knowledge? Let's discuss that, okay? So very specifically, today in this episode, we're going to ask, do the three criteria that Hervé listed out, do they solve the problem from the last episode? In other words, can the walking robot pass the three criteria or does it fail the three criteria? So let's re-explain, since you may not have heard the previous episode, what the walking robot algorithm is. This is taken directly from David Deutsch's Beginning of Infinity. I didn't come up with it myself. So it's this idea that you use a genetic programming algorithm and it writes an algorithm um, and it does it using um, you know, crossbreeding, mutation, and it's select uh, variation and selection. And you end up with an algorithm that actually does allow the robot to walk using a set of subroutines that was written by a graduate student that it doesn't write, okay? So when we're talking about this walking robots algorithm, let's compare it to the three criteria. Is it 
capable of enabling its own preservation. Well, the final walking robot algorithm kept itself preserved compared to other variants by being more useful. And it's the one that ends up in mass production with all the robots and all the variants are dead now. Okay. So yes, it seems to me that it passes criteria number one. Okay. Second criteria is it can be copied from one embodiment to another without changing its pro properties. The algorithm can and probably will be copied to other robots precisely because it is useful. So it seems to me that it passes criteria number two. Number three was it can enable transformations and retain the ability to cause them again. Well, now it seems to me that the algorithm enables the robot to walk, which is a transformation and can cause them again. So again, it seems to me that it passes the third criteria. So again, it seems to me that we have at least a reasonable interpretation of the three criteria that the walking robot algorithm does pass. And therefore, if we're taking them at least the way I'm reading those three criteria, it should count as knowledge too, okay? Um, now, this maybe isn't so surprising. After all, the beginning of affinity account of knowledge is meant to summarize an early form of the constructor theory of knowledge that Deutsch was working on at the time. So of course, they're very, very similar, all right? Now, I was talking to a defender of Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge. So once I had put Hervé's summary out there, I actually could reference that summary and I could talk to people who defend Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge and I could reference it and I could say, do you agree with this summary? And then we can actually talk with people about it, okay? And I can offer my criticisms in a far more explicit manner. Um, and there's me again using that word explicit. That is something that I, I'm going to claim is very important but in some future um, podcast. Now I pointed out, so this, I'm talking to a person who's a defender. Let's call him Henry. Okay, that's not his real name. Um, I asked, are these criteria um, insufficient? And this would mean, so I, I showed to him that it passes the three criteria. And I said, are the criteria insufficient in some way? If they are insufficient, if this doesn't by itself eliminate the walking robot algorithm, then it seems to me that you have a problem to resolve. Now, you could resolve this problem in one of two ways. One is you could add additional criteria or you could modify or make more explicit the existing three criteria. For our purposes, I don't actually care if you make the three criteria more explicit or if you add a fourth or fifth criteria that um, clarify, okay? Because for our purposes, those are gonna be exactly the same thing, okay? So that would be one way you could go about this. You could take those three criteria and you could improve them in some way or add additional criteria. And those additional criteria could then eliminate the walking robot algorithm, get us back to the two sources and the theory would no longer have a problem. Okay. The other way we could do it is we could drop the two sources hypothesis. So in this case, what we're doing is we're accepting the original three criteria as is, and we're allowing whatever consequences follow to follow. Okay, if this means there are more sources of knowledge than the two sources, then so be it. Okay, so we, I will accept either way of going about this. Now, there's an interesting phenomena that comes out of this when I point this problem out to fans of Deutsch's theory of, constructor theory of knowledge. It turns out that the two sources hypothesis is treated as the single most important part of the theory, not the criteria or definition of knowledge. Now, how do I know that? Because in every single case, without exception, the defenders of the theory will always try to either add to or clarify those three criteria. Not a single one has ever said, 
oh, maybe the two sources hypothesis might be wrong. Maybe we should consider dropping it. Okay. It is just a given that the two sources hypothesis is correct and that it's the criteria that must be clarified or modified in some way to get back to the two sources hypothesis. Now, this is strange. Okay. Normally, the implications of a theory aren't considered core to the theory. Normally, we start with the theory and we that we try to boldly and precisely explain. And then we have no choice to accept the implications of that theory. Okay. This property of having to accept the implications of a theory has a term that David Deutsch gave it. It's called reach. Okay. So what we're talking about is that normally you specify the concept or theory, you give it a label, and then you accept the implications of that theory as is. You and you accept the reach of that theory, okay? It's the primary goal um, of trying to put together a good explanation is to have implications that we can't control by simply changing gut feels or rewording things a bit, okay? This is the concept of easy to variedness versus hard to variedness. But for some reason, the two sources part of the theory is considered core to the point where we feel the need to adapt the theory itself, meaning the criteria, in this case, until we get back to the two sources. Now, let me use an analogy to show how weird this might come across as, okay? Imagine if Euclidean geometry saw as its core feature that triangles always have 181 degrees. So you show the Euclideans that actually by their own axioms, it's 180 degrees. So the Euclideans start to ad hoc vary their axioms to try to get back to 181 degrees rather than changing the assumption that triangles always have 181 degrees, okay? That would just be weird, right? And so I want to call out just how strange this is, that the two sources part of the theory is considered the core of the theory rather than the criteria or the theory itself, okay? Now, let me steel man this, though. I, I really it, it could be just the easiest part of the theory for people like me to understand, too. Don't you think? I mean, it's okay. it just has, yes. a, has a, Yeah. OK, so so let me. Here's the thing, though. If I if I take that stance, that's the reason why they, they see that as core is because it's the easiest part to understand. Isn't that really just the same as saying they don't understand the theory? Fair enough. Okay, so that for me to take that stance, that might be the truth. In fact, I think that may be, in fact, the truth. Okay, but for me to take that stance is, in some sense, me just upfront saying, oh, well, they're wrong, and then I'm not making an argument. So I, I don't want to do that. Okay, I want to steel man their argument as much as they can and then criticize that version, the steel man version. Okay, so let me offer a steel man. All right, suppose they are theorizing about what it what it make what it makes what it makes up the two sources so special in the first place okay so they adapt the criteria on the fly precisely because this is supposed to be a theory about the two sources okay this isn't maybe completely unreasonable okay there there are some problems with that and we'll talk about the problems but it's not maybe not completely unreasonable so let me give an example let's say that i have defined a triangle as having three sides and then somebody draws a, tri a quote triangle, but they make their sides squiggly, okay? They say, oh, look, this has three sides, just like you said. So this is, by your definition, a triangle, okay? Well, it would make perfect sense at this point for me to not 
just accept the implications of the way I happen to write those, the words I happen to pick, but instead to clarify what I really meant. Okay. So it would be fair for me at this point to say, okay, fair, but I actually meant straight sides. So I'm going to now rewrite this as I'll add, a, I'll add an additional criteria. Triangle has three sides and the sides must be straight. Or I just rewrite the whole thing. It has triangle has three straight sides. Okay. If this is what's going on, then I would consider that completely fair. All right. Now, here's the thing, though. There is an implication to taking that stance. And it's a, it's a really big implication. It's one that I don't think defenders of the theory are willing to take. It means Deutsch's theory is explicitly about the two sources of knowledge. And tautologically, nothing else counts as knowledge as per the starting assumption. Okay. If this is actually the case, this changes my perception of the theory entirely. It's like saying, actually, I'm defining knowledge such that it must come from biological evolution or human minds, and that anything that doesn't come from those two is tautologically, by definition, not knowledge. Now, no one has ever told me this, okay? I mean, like, that would be an easy thing to point out to me from the defenders of the, of the theory if that was really what they were thinking. So no one's ever said, this is a theory about the two sources, Bruce. They've always treated it as if the criteria do in fact exclude the robot and it's just obvious that it does. This, that's how it's always been treated, okay? Now, um, what I'm gonna say is you have to take a stance either way. And I don't care which stance you take. If tautologically we're choosing to define knowledge as that which comes through the two sources, then if I can show criteria that don't match it, I've refuted the criteria, if not the two sources hypothesis. And the criteria have a problem that need to be solved. Or you must decide the criteria define knowledge. And if they define something outside the two sources, then we've refuted the two sources hypothesis part of the theory. It's got to be one of the two though. Okay. So when I bring up this, my refutations, my counterexamples, I'm not telling you which part of the theory I'm refuting. I'm refuting a combination of both. And it's really up to the defenders of the theory to decide which part I've refuted and to error correct the theory so that it no longer has the problem. Okay. So here's the problem then. It is possible that nothing separates the output of the two sources from the more narrow, from more narrow means of creating knowledge, such as the walking robot algorithm. And that the real difference is in fact that the two sources are actually special because they are open-ended search algorithms and that they're the only two we know of, okay? That is to say, they are algorithms that solve the problem of open-endedness as we discussed in our two episodes ago. If this is true, then that would mean Deutsch is barking up the wrong tree. He's trying to find something physically different about the output when really the difference lies in the search algorithm itself. This is, again, what I believe is actually going on. Personally, that is my opinion. But let's keep an open mind, okay? And I can't prove that's the case. That's my conjecture as to what's going on. Now, when I raised these issues to Henry, how did he respond to this challenge? Henry tells me that I'm missing the fact that Deutsch's theory is exclusively about replicators and that I'm misreading the three criteria. Now, that's actually a form of clarifying the criteria. So this is fair, okay? Namely, he says, I'm missing the fact that the three criteria imply that knowledge keeps itself preserved by being a replicator that lasts for hundreds or even thousands of years. It isn't merely in need of being able to be copied, but it must be copied. 
and it must be copied many, many times. Now, in my version, the way I was reading the three criteria, there was no requirement for the information to be copied at all, only that it must be able to be copied. Though if it's useful, it likely will be copied. Now, let me use an example. So since I've been comparing Deutsch's theory of knowledge to Campbell's theory, Campbell Popper's theory of knowledge, their evolutionary epistemology, let's use Campbell's example of the paramecium. So let me explain that example. He imagines this, par he doesn't imagine, he says there's a paramecium and the paramecium we know um, works off of a simple algorithm to find food. It, it determines if there's food nearby and, that it, and then it, 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 um, if it doesn't see anything, then it randomly tries a direction to move. And if it finds that it's blocked, then it tries a different direction at random. And it keeps doing that until it can tell it's moving. And then by doing that, it will move away from where it knows there's no food towards a direction that might have food. Okay, so this is a very, very simple um, example of what Campbell calls blind variation and selective retention, okay, where it, the variance is in different directions the paramecium might move, and the selective retention is, is that it continues to move in that direction once it finds it's not blocked, okay. So Campbell considers this creation of a very simple kind of knowledge, even though there is no replicator. In fact, this is a really key part of Campbell's theory. And again, I probably need to do a separate podcast where I try to summarize his paper, but I've mentioned Campbell's theory at length in past episodes. So if you've been following the show for a while, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. But Campbell, what he did is he points out that um, when we talk about evolution, we typically think of it in terms of three things, variation, selection, and this idea of replicators. Okay, he drops the replicators for his theory. He says, we don't need the replicators. Evolution is evolution, even if it's just blind variation and selective retention, and that alone creates knowledge. Okay, and then he uses the paramecium example as an example of blind variation and selective retention that has no replicators. Okay, so here's a question. Does Campbell's paramecium example match Hervé's three criteria if we drop the apparently implicit requirement to require the knowledge um, to get copied. I'm gonna leave that out there. My answer is yes, it does. But I'll let people go back and look at the paramecium example and compare it to Deutsch's theory of knowledge, at least the way I was reading it as not requiring that the knowledge get copied, okay? When read that way, there is no requirement that you have replicators. You might have replicators, but you don't have to have them, okay? So Henry reads criteria one and two as implicitly saying something like, number one, it is capable of enabling its own preservation through replication. Or maybe number two, it must be copied many times from one embodiment to another without changing its properties. Whereas I read it more literally. Now, actually, Henry goes further. He tells me that the walking robot algorithm doesn't count as knowledge because real knowledge keeps itself instantiated for generations and for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years. So according to Henry, if it's only replicates for a short time, it's not actually knowledge. So the implication here that maybe he didn't intend this, but this is an implication of what he's saying, is that e even useful adaption that lasts only for a few decades no longer gets to be considered knowledge. Okay. And then I would have to ask, okay, then what is it? If it's not knowledge, what is it? It's clearly something that's exactly the same as knowledge. It just didn't last long enough to count as knowledge. Okay. What is it? Henry is more than a bit vague as to how many generations are required to be considered knowledge. And 
I admit I'm very skeptical. I was very skeptical of his claim at first that this was even intended by um, Deutsch's constructive theory of knowledge. But let's ask the question, is Deutsch's constructive theory of knowledge explicitly about replicators? And does it require hundreds and th hundreds or thousands of years of copying? In other words, I'm asking, what if Henry is correct? He recommended that I go reread Chiara Maletto's book, particularly chapter five. Here is what I found. I'm going to actually take you through what the book actually says, you know, using quotes. On page one, Knowledge defined objectively as information that is capable of perpetuating its own existence. So far, that fits the ro walking robot example perfectly. On page 144, she defines knowledge as a particular type of information that can enable its self-perpetuation. Um, I, ca I call knowledge. Um, again, the walking robot example passes. And then she says, knowledge merely denotes a particular kind of information, which has the capacity per to perpetuate itself and stay embodied in physical systems. In this case, by encoding some facts about the environment. Again, the walking robot absolutely passes with flying colors. Okay. So what, at first I thought for sure, Henry had misunderstood what she was saying, but let's keep going. She uses an example of a cricket that transforms dirt into a hole and how she tried to fill in the hole in her lawn and the hole would reappear. That's an example of what she calls resilience, okay? She then defines the concept of resilience this way and points out that the most resilient thing is a recipe in the DNA that creates the organism that creates the hole. So the most resilient thing here isn't the hole, it's not the cricket that creates the hole, it's the DNA that creates the cricket that creates the hole. All right, this is from pages one to five. She defines recipes in terms of being resilient due to being useful. This is on page 150, 151. She later defines the concept of a catalyst that allows a transformation. So this is analogous to chemistry, okay? She creates the idea of an abstract catalyst as a metaphor to a catalyst. So this is kind of a metaphor of a metaphor. So a catalyst is a met metaphorical um, the, to a chemistry catalyst and an abstract catalyst is a metaphor from a catalyst. Um, so an abstract catalyst is where knowledge is adapted information that can cause transformations and then rema remains to cause it again. So in this analysis, the cricket is the catalyst um, in this metaphor. And she says this explicitly on page 142. She says, like the cricket in my story when referring to catalysts. But the information in the cricket's DNA, which can also recreate the cricket itself, is the abstract catalyst. This is on page 148 of her book. It's a catalyst. She, wh why abstract catalyst? Well, because it's a catalyst, because on page 148, it can enable transformations and retain the property of causing them again. And it's abstract because... It identif its identity does not depend on the physical systems in which it is embodied. How do we distinguish abstract catalysts from other kinds of information? This is on page 150, I'm quoting her. We need to look for information that can enable transformations and is resilient. So the walking robot arguably passes all these, arguably passes all these requirements. Number one, it enables the transformation of walking. Number two, it's not dependent on physical embodiment. Number three, it it was and is resilient compared to its competitors due to being useful, okay? So at least the way I'm reading it, it passes everything that she said and it counts as an abstract catalyst. But 
let me acknowledge something here. It depends on what you mean by transformation, recipe, and resilient. And arguably, you could interpret those terms in such a way that the walking robot algorithm would not pass. So here's some other things that Kiara mentions. She says it must have causal abilities. Here's a quote, page 151. Being a useful adapt adaption guarantees the survival of that piece of information with causal abilities. It is what guarantees that it is resilient and that it, it qualifies as an abstract catalyst. So she ties abstract catalysts to the idea that it's a piece of information with causal abilities that is useful. She ties it directly to usefulness. Stated this way, I would say the walking robot passes with flying colors again. Okay. But wait, on the same page, she then, without ever explicitly saying it, acts as if not only can it be copied, but will be copied. And pay attention, she even says, for generations. Here's the quote. So the information in a piece of DNA may or may not be an abstract catalyst, depending on whether or not it can propagate itself for generations, thus remaining instantiated in physical systems. So this is where Henry got this. <laughs> she really does imply it needs to stick around for generations. But how many generations are required for adapted information to become knowledge? A hundred, a thousand, a million? And by the way, can I count the walking robot algorithm as knowledge if I let it run for a million generations? I could do that. I could let it run for a million generations and it would continue to um, be the best one and it would keep itself uh, instantiated that way. Okay. And you'd get little tiny tweaks to it, but it would stay the way it was. Okay. And what if the toy, uh, what if we build a toy or we, it's a robot that goes into production and it remains for hundreds of years later, would the walking robot algorithm then count as knowledge? But it is interesting that Kayara seems to assume knowledge is a replicator here, just like Henry argued to me. She never once explicitly states this when laying out her criteria. She just assumes it is obvious later on. That, that quote there that I just gave you, that is the only place I can really find this. Where And, and it's not her saying, oh, to count as knowledge, it must propagate for generations. She does not say that. She just acts like it does. Okay, so it is, it is implicitly part of what she's talking about. Despite defining recipes as a in her book, set of instructions to realize a transformation, she then only recognizes two kinds of recipes. On page nine, I shall start with recipes coded in the pattern of living cells, DNA. And on page 13, the other kind of recipe is those that maintain our civilization um, in existence. So she implicitly assumes there are only two kinds of knowledge in DNA and human knowledge. This is of course the two sources hypothesis again. Now it seems that Deutsch and Marletto assume their theory of knowledge only applies to replicators and write as if that is the case and even choose terms like recipe that bring to mind things like copying. But I can't find anywhere where they, where she explicitly states as a hard requirement, it must be a replicator and it must be replicated for, for hundreds or thousands of years. Okay. It just seems to be assumed that's what it's going to imply. But I think I can conclude that Henry was correct. <laughs> that when Henry argued that to me, that Deutsche Marletto intended the theory to apply only to replicators, that 
That is exactly what she was thinking. And the reason why I feel we can comfortably assume this is the very fact that she writes as if it's the case. Like she wouldn't have written if that was the case, if that wasn't in her mind somewhere. So I declare Henry correct that probably that was the intent. Um, but I do not believe that uh, she ever explicitly states it as part of the criteria or definition or theory of knowledge. So I'm going to now assume Henry is correct. And I'm going to point out that this is equivalent to saying that in addition to the three criteria that Hervé listed, there's actually an implicit fourth criteria. It must be replicated to be considered knowledge and possibly even a fifth criteria that it must be copied for generations. Um, or, or if you prefer, we can see that as a clarification on criteria one and two instead. Okay, I don't care whether you clarify by making the criteria more explicit or if you add criteria, it's the same thing. This is interesting and let me explain why. Because it's possible we have two theories here. The first theory, the way I'm reading constructive theory of knowledge, that does not require replicators. In fact, I think the constructive theory of knowledge minus replicators is identical to Campbell's and Popper's evolutionary epistemology. I think that the two theories are one theory at that point. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what it seems like it to me. Okay. So recall that Campbell intentionally dropped replicators to come up with the generalized theory of evolution. So that's why I actually think the constructed theory of knowledge, absent the implicit assumption of replicators, turns out to be identical to the Popper-Campbell theory of knowledge. Okay. With Deutsch's theory of knowledge at this point being a subset of Campbell and Popper's evolutionary epistemology. That's really interesting. Okay. I mean, what if that's the case? What if Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge is a subset of Campbell and Popper's evolutionary epistemology or their theory of knowledge? So I asked Henry if it was okay to write down as a fourth criteria that it requires replication to his, um, and my intention of doing this was so that I could show him my great discovery that we actually had two theories here and that the, the way I was reading it was the same as the Campbell-Popper one. Um, so under this, the original three criteria would not include replicators and thus much match Campbell and Popper's evolutionary epistemology and Deutsch's theory would now be limited to replicators. When I tried to do this, though, a curious thing happened. Henry said firmly, no, you're not allowed to write that down. Because then we're defining knowledge in terms of how it was created um, instead of how what it physically is. Now, let me just point out that he's completely right about that. If we add a new criteria that says it is only knowledge if it happens to get replicated, otherwise it isn't, even if it's otherwise identical and equally useful, that we have now explicitly defined the theory of knowledge in terms of the process that created it, okay, instead of what it physically is. Now, I pointed out to Henry that either this was part of the theory or it wasn't. If it was, then his view of knowledge was defined in terms of how information got created, if only implicitly. Um, so it should be allowed to be written down since it is a correct understanding of the theory. He then firmly told me that it was an implicit in the theory and thus a requirement, but not part of the explicit definition of knowledge itself. This was necessary, he argued, so the definition or theory wasn't defined in terms of how knowledge is created. I pointed out that without that, without that clarification, I had clearly misinterpreted the three criteria. So it didn't make sense, didn't it make sense to like clarify what was really meant? Plus, he's not denying its 
on a criteria for knowledge. He was just refusing to write it down and make it explicit. So it's part of the definition of knowledge by his own admission, even if it's not written down. And he's trying to use that as a way of eliminating the walking robot algorithm as counting as knowledge. He then insisted quite firmly that it was just obvious, yes, he used those words, the phrase capable of enabling its own preservation really meant gets replicated. So there was no need to write it down and it was my own fault I had misinterpreted it. I had apparently missed the manifest truth of what those words meant. Um, so let me, let me talk to Henry just for a second. He's, he may hear, hear this episode. I am not attacking his position. Henry, I'm not attacking your position. Okay. And there's even a fair point you're making here. And I wonder if you can see that I am trying to steal man as best I can the position that you're taking here. Okay. And I hope you can also see the problem I'm raising. I'm going to great lengths to make the problem explicit and obvious. So Henry, can you see that if you don't write down, write down a requirement and you keep it explicit, that that in no way affects anything at all? If it is an implicit requirement, it is just as much a problem as if we wrote it down and made it explicit. The fact that you're choosing to not write it down does not make the problem go away, okay? It just hides the problem. And we're critical rationalists. We should not avoid problems. We like problems. We want problems. We embrace problems as opportunities to improve our theories. So here's the problem. Deutsch and Morletto are implicitly making the theory of knowledge about how the knowledge got created, specifically through replicators, and not fully about what it physically is. And since what they really want is to define knowledge in terms of what it physically is, this is a problem that needs to be fixed. We should not hide it. Okay. So to be clear, Henry wants to implicitly define Deutsch's theory of knowledge in terms of how the information got created via replicators, but he doesn't want to explicitly write it down, even though he admits it's a requirement. Because if we write it down, then it's immediately obvious that the definition or theory has a problem, namely that it act, it's actually defining knowledge, not in terms of what it physically is, but in terms of how it got created. Now, let me just point something out. Maybe that's not such a big deal. In fact, the Campbell-Popper theory of knowledge, their evolutionary epistemology, is explicitly defined in terms of how knowledge gets created by blind variation and natural and selective retention. So from that point of view, maybe, I, maybe it's not so bad if Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge is defined in terms of how the knowledge got created. On the other hand, let me argue in favor of Henry's position for a second. I admit that this has always to me seemed like a giant weakness in Campbell's and Popper's evolutionary epistemology. It, it seems like it's a really undesirable trait that when we talk about knowledge, we're basically talking about that which comes out of a successful um, selective variation um, selection and variation selection algorithm. And, you know, as a computer scientist in particular, we don't define things in terms of the implementation of the algorithm. We define things in terms of the inputs and the outputs. And there's a really good reason why we do that, right? The moment you say, look, I'm going to define my epistemology in terms of how knowledge gets created, it kind of sucks. And so I, I totally see where Henry's coming from, why he wants to avoid defining knowledge in terms of the process that created it, okay? And furthermore, if we are going to define Deutsch's theory of knowledge in terms of the process that created it, 
there's this really easy proposal I can offer. Just define knowledge as knowledge is adapted information that has causal power and causes it to remain so, and that was created either via biological evolution or human minds. And if it wasn't created by one of those, then it's not considered knowledge. <laughs> now, again, at this point, no one's going to want to define knowledge that way. Okay. But if, if we're going to define it in terms of how knowledge got created, then why not? Okay. So I, I totally see why Henry wants to avoid doing this because then it, it, it really is kind of a sucky theory at this point. It's just, I shouldn't say that. It's a theory that's got something that sucks about it that we, I would really rather change. However, Henry is tacitly admitting that there is a problem with Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge, that implicitly it is about how knowledge got created. So I'm going to accept Henry's view, specifically that the constructor theory of knowledge, as stated today, is about replicators and replicators that survive for generations. However, I insist we, we do not make this implicit, but instead we make it an explicit criteria. I am always going to insist on explicit criteria. So we can easily see that it causes a problem that must be fixed. That's a good thing as a critical rationalist. And this is one of the main reasons I see Deutsch's current theory of knowledge as flawed, because it has this implicit criteria that really boils down to, it has to be created through replicators that he's trying to avoid stating explicitly. That doesn't strike me as that strikes me as a problem that needs to be addressed. So interestingly, defining knowledge as, as requiring to be a replicator doesn't actually help with the walking robot algorithm. As we've seen, the walking ro robot algorithm, a genetic programming algorithm that, that creates the algorithm, does use replicators. Plus, in our hypothetical example, the algorithm is going to get replicated into multiple robots. So really, that criteria that it has to be about replicators doesn't help even slightly with the uh, denying the walking robot algorithm from being knowledge. However, if we define resilience to mean it keeps itself instantiated for hundreds or thousands of years, that would very likely eliminate the walking robot algorithm. What are the odds that this walking robot um, that we did is going to go into production and then hundreds or thousands of years from now, the same robot with the same algorithm is in use, okay? Because they'll be much, much better then. Right. Yeah. Okay. Here's the problem with trying to, there, there's a, there's an inherent problem with trying to eliminate the walking robot algorithm in that way though. Specifically it eliminates much of human knowledge. So for example, do airplane designs last for hundreds or thousands of hundreds or possibly thousands of years either? Okay. They don't. Okay. So are we prepared to also say airplane designs are not knowledge? Okay. Now I'm okay with you declaring it either way. Again, I'm really just looking that you're consistent. Okay. I've also earmarked a, other, a few other things that might be additional criteria or additional clarifications, if you prefer, um, that might disqualify the walking robot from being algorithm from being knowledge under Deutsch's theory. So it's a bit vague what a recipe is. And if an algorithm counts, if it isn't constructing something. So Chiara writes about recipes as if they construct something. And I've been talking about a transformation that is a walking robot, which isn't constructing anything. Okay. There seems to be a few other places where we might grasp onto implicit criteria that eliminate the walking robot algorithm. So let's, let's play with those and see if any of those work better than trying to base it around 
replicators or basing it around um, lasting for generations or for hundreds or thousands of years. So let's imagine a revision to the original three criteria. Uh, the original were, it is capable of enabling its own preservation. It can be copied from an embodiment, from one embodiment to another without changing its properties. It can enable transformations and retain the ability to cause them again. We're going to now add implicitly or explicitly when we say enabling its own preservation, we mean it's a replicator that keeps getting copied, not merely that it can be copied. And when we say transformations, we mean it constructs something, okay? Now, if we were to do this, um, that would, that second one in particular, would eliminate the walking robot algorithm from being knowledge anymore. So let's explore that further. Um, what is a transformation? If a transformation is understood to mean having to construct something, the ro walking robot algorithm is out. Is that what was intended by the word transformation, though? Let's explore that using quotes again from various defenders and from the book. So let's lose an uncontroversial example first to really look into this further. Let's say we have an automated factory that creates airplanes or bridges or whatever. Okay, so here's from Kiara's book, page 153. The recipe for the aircraft must be copied for the factory to survive. It is an abstract catalyst that keeps the factory going for years. This recipe is a set of instructions to realize the construction of an aircraft. It is the recipe in the recipe in the sense that is the sequence of steps that one has to follow in order to forge the metal into the shape of the plane. The recipe is a fully recipe for a fully fledged aircraft is what allows the construction of the aircraft to happen reliably. Notice that she defines recipe in terms of being a transformation, but writes as if it's obvious that she really means a construction, at least in this paragraph. Okay. So the walking robot algorithm is a transformation in the sense that it allows the robot to transform itself and walk, not in the sense that it constructs something. And it does, what the robot does do walking through a set of instructions. That's the algorithm. Algorithms are a set of instructions, just like she's saying. Okay. So we're, we're, it's kind of close to what she's talking about, but if she really means transformation equals construction, then I agree the walking robot algorithm doesn't pass. So here's the point I'm trying to make. I'm, I'm like belaboring this and I'm, you're probably going crazy by this point. What I'm trying to say is whether or not the walking robot algorithm passes depends on if we're willing to accept walking as a kind of transformation or not. And it's a little bit open to interpretation. We could play the same game with the word recipe. Is an algorithm a recipe? That word does not necessarily summon, the word re recipe does not necessarily summon to my mind an algorithm and does not call to mind the idea of, instead it calls to mind the idea of transmuting, constructing something, not merely allowing a thing to move around. So it is a little unclear if the walking robot example is knowledge in the sense of being a recipe or in the sense of being a transformation. Arguably, yes, it passes, and arguably, no, it doesn't. Again, it depends on what you mean by recipe and transformation. Now, here's the thing. I don't care how you define these terms, so long as you're explicit about it, and so long as you apply the criteria consistently. Again, I want to emphasize explicitness and consistency. So for example, let's say humans build the algorithm for a robot to walk. Now I've been told in my, back when I was a master's student studying artificial intelligence, I was told that the original Boston 
dynamic robots, that they didn't use any sort of machine learning or anything like that. Instead, they came up with their own algorithms to get the robots to walk, okay? So let's say a human makes the robot walk and there's no evolutionary algorithm. It's human creativity that is used to come up, come up to do this, okay? Um, is it, is this now not knowledge because it is not a construction or a recipe? You have to, what I'm asking is that you apply the criteria consistently, okay? So if a human creatively makes the algorithm, is it not knowledge because it's not a construction or a recipe? Or let's say we're talking about knowledge in an animal's genes. So for example, a giraffe can walk on the first day. So the giraffe has the knowledge in its genes on how to walk, okay? Or at least that's how I would normally have said it. But if you want to tell me that because nothing got transmuted when the draft is walking, and this is not a transformation or it's not a recipe, then we can no longer say that the draft has the knowledge in its genes to walk. Because walking is not a kind of transformation or a recipe, arguably, okay? And therefore doesn't fit Deutsch's theory of knowledge. Are you willing to go that far? I'm fine with that. Like I'm, I don't care how we define things. I'm just looking for a consistent application that's explicit. So, furthermore, let's let's go think back to uh, Hervé's uh, list of examples. He he gave the list of the two sources and he gave examples. Those examples included democracy, language, the Mona Lisa, quantum theory. Is democracy and quantum physics, are those a recipe any more or less than the walking robot? Is democracy and quantum physics a specific construction of something? If so, what is it constructing? Are you prepared to drop these examples on the grounds that they aren't recipes and they don't construct anything? The Mona Lisa may exist for many hundreds of years, let's say, but let's say there's, uh, there is a great painting that is a fad and then it disappears in a few decades. Are you prepared to declare it not knowledge because it didn't last hundreds or thousands of years? Again, I, I know I'm like going way overboard trying to emphasize this, but I am asking for consistency. And that's something I should be allowed to ask for. If you declare the walking robot algorithm not knowledge because it didn't get copied, then it, go, then it goes into a toy and it gets copied. I'm asking you to declare it knowledge at that point, if that was the dividing line you wanted to base it on. If you declare the walking robot algorithm not knowledge, because it is not a recipe that constructs something, then I'm asking you to declare democracy and quantum physics also not knowledge. If you declare the walking robot not knowledge because it didn't last a thousand years, then I'm asking you to declare an aircraft design that is retired after a few decades not knowledge also. What I'm not allowing you to do is to declare the walking robot not knowledge due to say sticking around, it didn't stick around for a thousand years and then drop that implicit criteria when we're talking about human knowledge, like an airplane design that only lasts for a few decades. Okay, so Henry, I'm allowing you to modify the criteria in any way you see fit so long as you make it explicit and apply it consistently. Then take whatever the consequences are after you've done that, okay? Okay. Now, let me even come up with one that Henry didn't come up with that I actually think is worthy of some discussion. What about this one? Here from her book, she says, the best way to define this type of information called knowledge is that it is exactly the, the thing one would ultimately have to eliminate in order to prevent a particular transformation from being performed reliably. Henry never raised this one, but I could channel my inner two sources apologist and I could make an argument something like this. 
the walking robot is not knowledge because Chiara Marletto says knowledge is defined as being exactly the thing you have to eliminate in, in order to prevent a particular transformation from being performed reliably. And if we eliminate the walking robot algorithm, we could just run the genetic programming algorithm again and a new one would appear. Okay, would this allow us to eliminate the walking robot algorithm? At first, this might really seem like a strong argument, but consider the following. The argument ignores the fact that Chiara's own example of a cricket constructing a hole in the dirt has exactly the same problem. If you destroy every single copy of DNA of crickets, a biological, biological evolution um, now has a niche that's no longer filled. So it will likely create a new recipe that accomplishes the same thing that creates a hole. In fact, we can point to gophers creating holes instead or something like that, okay? Because Campbell's knowledge creation happens in a hierarchy of variation and selection algorithms, it will always be the case that it can and probably will be recreated by something else in the hierarchy once the niche is no longer filled. It also means airplanes aren't knowledge because if you eliminate the Wright brothers' first design, um, surely somebody else using human creativity would eventually have in invented airplanes. You have to assume that Chiara really meant exactly the one thing that that must be eliminated that is a the most proximate cause, which in this case is the walking robot algorithm, not the genetic programming algorithm. But it is arguably that it might or might not eliminate the walking robot algorithm. Again, it depends on how you interpret it. And all I'm asking is that you make it explicit, the criteria explicit, and apply it consistently. So if you want to use this one to eliminate the walking robot algorithm, that's fine, but I then get to use it to eliminate various things that you probably do consider to be knowledge. So we have a handful of arguable criteria at this point by which to eliminate the walking robot example. A recipe might imply we have to construct something rather than just transform something in the more generic sense of walking. Resilience might imply anything from microseconds compared to its competitors or thousands of millions of years. Capable of enabling its own preservation might imply by replicators. The thing you need to eliminate may or may not require that the thing be the proximate cause. These arguable points exist because the theory is vague in some parts and thus open to interpretation. Now, let me, let me, let's talk about that for a second. When a theory has vague points that are open to interpretation, let's refer to that as the theory's degrees of freedom as a shorthand, okay? It is not abnormal for theories, at least initially, to have degrees of freedom, thereby leaving some parts of the theory open to interpretation. In fact, it's probably impossible to avoid at first. Perhaps all theories have some degree of free, degrees of freedom where things are open to interpretation. So the fact that Deutsch's theory, constructor theory of knowledge, has degrees of freedom like this is not in and of itself out of the ordinary. Okay. So the constructor theory of knowledge currently has enough degrees of freedom to eliminate the walking robot algorithm as knowledge. And I'm admitting this up front that that's the case. But in some sense, this is the wrong question. The question is, can you explicitly state why the walking robot algorithm is eliminated, then hold the same explicit criteria constant and everything you did want to include as knowledge still counts as knowledge, okay? Henry, that is my real question to you. That is what I am trying to ask you to do in our various 
discussions. And this is my attempt to clarify my true meaning to you using tons of examples and such. Okay. I am not claiming it's impossible, by the way. I'm asking you to take this as a valid challenge and approach it with the same relish that a true critical rationalist would. This is a problem worthy of being solved. Now let's talk about how critical rationalism works, okay? Think of me as making the following conjecture. Deutsch's theory of knowledge is flawed because there is no set of criteria you can come up with that eliminates the walking robot algorithm, but if held constant, wouldn't also eliminate many examples within the two sources that we all know are knowledge. Therefore, his theory is currently flawed. Okay. That is my conjecture, by the way. And I am saying that, and I am stating it as a conjecture. Now you might say, wait a minute, didn't you just say you're not saying, you're not saying it's impossible? Well, that's a conjecture. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but it is a conjecture. It may be wrong, just like all conjectures, but it is a good conjecture. And here's why because it is very easy to see how to refute it. You simply have to produce a set of explicit criteria that eliminates the walking robot without eliminating any examples of knowledge created by humans and or biological evolution. It does, does no good to say, well, prove to me there are no such criteria because that would be impossible for me to do. I can't try out an infinity of possible criteria. That is what justificationism is. When you try to turn this around on me and you say, well, prove to me there are no such criteria, you are being a justificationist, okay? For Deutsch's theory to be a correct theory, it must formulate the criteria of what knowledge is explicitly enough that I know what a counterexample would look like, but I can't find even a single counterexample. That is what we're trying to do when we're doing critical rationalism. If you keep forever arbitrarily changing the criteria on the fly or to choose to apply the criteria inconsistently to get back to the two sources, then Deutsch's theory must be declared a bad explanation. And indeed, that is what Deutsch says a bad explanation is. If you can't come up with a single consistent set of criteria, then Deutsch's theory must, at least in the current form, given the current criteria, be declared refuted and a new modified theory must be hypothesized. Those are your options. The moment I bring up that conjecture, you either, which I just did, you now only have, if you're a critical rationalist, a handful of choices. You must either produce the consistent set of criteria that eliminates the walking robot algorithm without eliminating everything in the two sources that you want to count as knowledge, or you must move to a bad explanation and forever just on the fly keep changing things, or you must declare it refuted. Those are your three options. So I offer this as an intriguing problem for the defenders of the theory of Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge to solve. Here is the challenge in a nutshell. Come up with a set of criteria that is explicit enough that it clearly eliminates the walking robot, but at the same time includes everything you want included. And I can't use that as a counterexample to you. A critical rationalist should relish this well-formed problem in their theory. My guess is, is that it's impossible so long as you insist on including the two sources hypothesis. I think that the current theory is wrong and it's wrong because it includes the two sources hypothesis, but I may be wrong. And it should be easy to refute me if I'm wrong by simply coming up with a single explicit and consistently applied set of criteria. Note how this compares to Shannon information theory. 
The constructor theory of knowledge includes a number of vague and implicit criteria. Defenders of the theory have to take uh, take measures to protect the theory from criticism, like refusing to write down criteria, even when they admit it applies to hide problems. It isn't actually defined in terms of what knowledge physically is, um, since it requires an implicit criteria about being replicators. What does or doesn't count as knowledge often seems to come up, come down to a gut feel of what should count. The criteria gets applied inconsistently and is changed on the fly. Okay, those are all very real problems with every single that every single defender of Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge has had to use with me up to this point, without exception. There is nothing equivalent to these problems in Shannon information theory. So getting back to my original discussion with Hervé that led to all this, this is why I don't consider us as yet having a theory of knowledge comparable to information theory. Having said that, this doesn't mean I think Deutsch's constructive theory is garbage or bad. I think it can be reformed. In fact, I, I even have my own suggestion of how to do that. Drop the two sources hypothesis. Drop it entirely. Give up on it. It's, I think that's the part of the theory that is wrong. I think once you actually drop the two sources hypothesis, the theory will be error corrected. And I think it will at that point also be equivalent to um, Campbell and Popper's evolutionary epistemology, except it will no longer be defined in terms of how the knowledge got created. It will be defined solely in terms of what it physically is. Therefore, I think it's actually a step forward compared to Campbell and Popper's theory. But I think right now that's not possible because the theory always includes the two sources hypothesis and that part of the theory is wrong. That's my opinion. And I've offered a challenge. I've offered a conjecture and I've offered how to refute that conjecture. And really, I'm, I'm open to waiting to see if anybody can produce um, the criteria. Until they do, tentatively, Deutsch's constructor theory of knowledge, particularly the two sources part of it, is now tentatively refuted. And that is how critical rationalism works. So do you think that Deutsch himself considers the two sources hypothesis is... is very important to his theory of knowledge. I or think he does. It's just kind of a side thing. He, I think he, it does. He does. Okay. He, he brings it up so much and so often. Okay. And it leads to an it, it ties into a number of his other theories. So for example, and this is something that needs its own podcast, so I, I can only briefly go into it. But why is it do you think that that Deutsch places so much emphasis on all the knowledge uh, uh that a, an animal, all its knowledge is in its genes where that's not true for humans. That that mm -hmm. explicitly mm -hmm. comes from the false two sources hypothesis. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. that and it, that is that belief that all knowledge, all an animal's knowledge is in its genes, where that's not true for humans, is the mm -hmm. basis for the conjecture that animals have no feelings. I and mean, there's like mm -hmm. a, a series of connections we have to make to get there. Yeah. But but it's based on what I consider to be a false the false part of the theory to begin with. So I have no need to ever go there, right? Interesting. So that okay. kind of, the, the animals has no feelings thing kind of comes from the the two sources. It does. Hypothesis. Yes. Okay. That 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 makes some sense. I mean, that's one of the, definitely one of the areas of, of Deutsch's ideas that I think doesn't sit well with a lot of people, yeah. myself included. I, I don't know. <laughs> You know, there, there's a lot of interesting things that come out of what I've just explained. So mm -hmm. I, I, 
I really hope that people in the community will take the criticisms I'm offering here in the right spirit, though, right? Hmm. I, I, I really feel like I've been treated sometimes even hostily by members of the community, not like overall, like, but just hmm. when I raise these issues, there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, no, it's, you know, it's obvious. It's, this isn't a problem. And mm. how can you not see that? How you, you're, I've I've literally had at least one person <laughs> mm. treat me like I'm stupid that I can't see that that there's just no problem here, right? Mm. Mm. And I, I I I think the reason why is because the two sources hypothesis is tied to a whole bunch of pet theories that really are a deep part of the overall meaning meme that mm. are going to have to die the moment that it is admitted the two sources hypothesis is wrong. And the two sources hypothesis honestly is wrong, right? Or at least that's my conjecture. And mm. until someone can offer the alternative ex set of criteria that's consistent, tentatively, I am right as a critical rationalist to consider the two sources hypothesis refuted. That's just how critical rationalism works. Okay. Mm. So for now, I'm embracing this tentative refutation and I'm embracing the idea that the two sources hypothesis is wrong. And I'll admit that I might be wrong and I've made a clear path on how to refute me. It's super clear path, really easy path, right? If I'm wrong, just come up with the explicit criteria and apply them consistently such that I don't have counterexamples I can use on you. Hmm. That's it. That's all you need to do. And I think that's impossible. I think that's why no one's been able to do it. And I think the reason why it's impossible is because the two sources are not the only place that creates knowledge. I think knowledge is in fact ubiquitously created by many, many, many selection and variation algorithms that exist in nature, just like Donald Campbell says. And I think that's the actual truth. So I don't think there's any other way around that because it happens to be the truth. Hmm. Okay. I'm now intermixing my opinions, why I hold my opinions, <laughs> everything together. However, let me just say this. I really am open to the possibility that a set of criteria could be found. And I actually would like that if somebody could come up with the explicit criteria that eliminates the walking robot without eliminating things that they don't want eliminated. That would be like intriguing if someone could actually do that. And I would embrace that very quickly if someone could, could come up with that. I'm not able to. Like I've tried my best and I, I absolutely cannot come up with a consistent set of criteria that ultimately then holds us to the two sources hypothesis. Well, this has been good. Is uh, are are you are you winding down here? Um, I am basically done. Yes. Okay. Do you have well, any, one, do you have any quest questions? Yes. Uh, well, only only question. Uh, now, when we're done with this knowledge series, will I receive some kind of a, a credential or a uh, <laughs> certificate? Maybe something, or is or is this more uh, more unschooling? Um, curiosity driven. <laughs> you know what? Let me kind of indirectly answer your question. The reason why I put so much emphasis on this, because I've, I've brought this up multiple times throughout the podcast and I've made a big deal about it. I made a big deal about it when we talked about animal intelligence. I made a big deal about it when we talked about artificial intelligence. Okay. Let me explain why. Okay. I am interested. My interest is in AGI. I want to understand how to create an AGI and trying to get the right theory of knowledge is a precursor to that. And I feel like every theory of knowledge I've seen has problems and sometimes big problems. 
So it's not that you're going to be credentialed, Peter. It's that you're going to help me figure this out okay. so that I can make progress on this problem. Okay. And I don't know the answers myself. <laughs> like I don't obviously don't know how to create an AGI, right? But just stop and consider the possibility I'm right for a second. What are the implications? Okay. So first of all, it means that, and I kind of already said this, that Campbell and Popper's theory of knowledge, their evolutionary epistemology, it means that it has something correct that Deutsch's doesn't, namely that the two sources hypothesis is wrong. But Deutsch's has something that's right that Campbell and Popper's doesn't. It tries to define knowledge in terms of what it physically is instead of how it got created. Okay. Hmm. Um, we've already now made progress on the problem just by embracing that viewpoint. Okay, we now we now know that there's a version of Deutsch's theory dropping the two sources hypothesis that it, that encompasses Campbell's and Popper's theory of knowledge and improves on it. So we're already a step forward. Now, do I think that's the correct theory? No, I don't. I, I in my um, artificial intelligence uh, podcasts, I talked about examples from machine learning that didn't match it, um, didn't match the Campbell Popper version, but also don't match the Deutsch version. Um, things like linear regression, things like that, where they seem to um, create deductive achievement, which I understand to be the same as knowledge, that there's maybe an open question whether those are the same thing or not. That's I'll do a podcast on that someday. Um, and yet don't use any sort of variation in selection. So I actually think that Deutsch's theory is, an if you drop the two sources, an improvement on Campbell's theory, which is Popper's theory, but I think it's still wrong. <laughs> but I feel like we've made some progress here, right? Like we're, we're actually moving towards an understanding that, and the other thing is, is that I believe that what Deutsch is trying to do is when he adds the, when he tacks the two sources hypothesis into his theory, he's acknowledging something important, namely the problem of open-endedness, but he doesn't know to call it the problem of open-endedness. And he doesn't know that the problem of open-endedness isn't about what knowledge physically is. It's about the nature of the search algorithm, okay? I figured that out based on trying to figure out why he kept attaching the, the um, two sources and being unable to figure out how to make it consistent with the, the rest of the theory, okay? So I know that the, I, assuming all my assumptions, my, my uh, conjectures are correct, and so far they're not refuted, I know the problem of open-endedness must be what's missing from the theory of knowledge. Okay, the theory of knowledge, and consider even from our um, our two podcasts ago, and we did the podcast on the uh, problem of open endedness. One of the things I quoted Kenneth O. Stanley as saying is that the fact that we see evolution in terms of variation and selection is in and of itself what's causing us to not figure out the problem of open endedness, because evolution isn't actually about variation and selection. It's something else, and we've it's. Variation selection is a got verisimilitude. It's similar to whatever it is that the real theory of knowledge is, but it, it needs to be defined in some other way. Okay. Think about all the places that I've now made progress against trying to figure out AGI, where I've eliminated dead, dead theories. I've even narrowed the search down to, I've constrained the search as to what we need to be looking for considerably. It's still way huge, like way bigger than I'm going to get in my lifetime, right? But these are genuine improvements on trying to understand what AGI is. 
And all of these came from just taking the existing theories, criticizing them, taking the criticism seriously, and then moving from one theory to the next, slowly trying to find the best theory. Okay. There's like something genuinely good going on here, even if it's just tiny progress that I wish more people knew about and more people could help me with. And there were more minds wrapped around it so that we could try to constrain this problem further until we actually figure out what AGI is. Well, I, I think it's, it seems like such a, uh, in sort of a neat way to put it, I guess. I, there's two sources of knowledge in the world, genes and human create created memes. But the way you put it, I mean, it's, it sounds like an assumption that's really worth criticizing and investigating and on this thanksgiving weekend i'm i'm grateful for you bruce and this has been very very uh, educational so thank you all right thank you very much peter the theory of anything podcast could use your help we have a small but loyal audience and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well to the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy, as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.